You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. To know oneself, it is often helpful to hear how others see you. Our guest, historian Charles Adele, is currently a senior fellow at the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney in Australia. Before heading down under, he served on the U.S. Secretary of State's policy planning staff from 2015 to 2017, where he advised Secretary Kerry on political and security issues in the Asia-Pacific region. Dr. Adele is in Dallas today to talk to council members on the eve of the publication of an important new book, The Lessons of Tragedy, which he co-authored with Hal Brands. So it's really the world premiere. The absolute world premiere by about 12 hours, I think, Jim. It's great to have you here, and you just got off a flight from Australia. Yeah, short hop, 16 and a half hours or so. So we'll make this a short podcast. Well, you know, the longer it goes, the more interesting it might get. So as the Trump administration raises questions about the validity of the liberal world order, there seems to be a plethora of books defending Pax Americana. But yours takes a very different tact with its grounding in the Greek classics. So what lessons should we take from the Greek tragedy that are relevant to today? I think when we started thinking about this, people being alarmed and being very concerned about what was happening, our view was a longer one. And that's partially because both Hal and I are historians, partially because I'm trying to make good on being a classics major and prove to my parents that it was worth it all those years ago. And you went to Yale. Uh, I did as an undergrad, that's right. Really, the argument was that we've forgotten what the liberal order was supposed to prevent in the first place. There are positive some issues that come out of it that America and the world have benefited from. But really, at its core, it was set up in the first place to try to forestall, to try to prevent a relapse into the cataclysms that we saw not once but twice in the 20th century. The more we thought about this, the more we began to think that you know, in the post-Cold War era, Americans have really gotten accustomed to thinking that great power rivalry, even great power war, is unthinkable. But that is a truly a historical way to think about history, because most of human history has had orders rise and orders fall. And so the frame of Greek tragedy really was, we were puzzling over this, that the Greeks, who in some ways, you know, are the founder of Western civilization, this amazingly high-achieving culture, at the core of their civilization was tragedy. And you would think, why the heck would such an optimistic, forward-looking people do this? And it was really our understanding that they did this in order to scare the bejesus out of themselves collectively and to propel themselves to actions that they wouldn't otherwise want to take. But I like to think of the glass as half full. So with your philosophy, or the one that you espouse in the book, aren't we in a sense perpetuating the fear of conflict? Are we perpetuating fear of conflict? That's one way to view it. The other way is, forestalling those actions that would make the international environment get worse. Because by not thinking about this, by not being willing to pay the price of leadership that we have in the past, you're likely to see the conditions set in motion that are likely to undermine this. So for example, it's a fair question for Americans to ask, why is it that America pays more than anyone else? Why do we have troops stationed around the world? Why do we care about faraway places such as Ukraine and the South China Sea? And why do we even undertake economic policies that at times have really disadvantaged American workers in particular industries? There are pretty good historical answers for all these, and they all really come back to the point that without American leadership, without American involvement, you were likely to see or at least this is what those who were creating the post-war order were trying to do, you're likely to see 
that international order being chipped away, being blown away in the first place. So by refusing to think about it, and this is really the central argument in this book, by refusing to think about how bad things could get, notwithstanding the fact that there's been undeniable progress throughout the centuries, you're less likely to take actions that will forestall that. In some ways, we're the products of our own success. A chapter of your book that I found very interesting is entitled Contemporary Amnesia. Everyone bears some of the finger pointing here. But you even are now seeing a drop in the number of history majors and so forth. Well, that's absolutely true. And, you know, I would say in some ways the concluding point is that if you look at the warning indicators of the norms, the institutions, the the regional balances of power, the warning light is beginning to blink red on a whole number of indicators. And the question is, if it's beginning to blink red, what are you going to do about it? And so part of this is we've gone so far from the last time that America truly dealt with a buckling of the international order with all the violence. It's been 75 years, right, since the end of World War II. It's been 30 years since the end of the Cold War. And what you really see is it's bipartisan, really, in almost every election that we've had since the Cold War, it was the candidate that promised to do less, not more, who was elected. Now, the last two candidates who we've had who ended up as president, both Barack Obama and Donald Trump, in very different ways, of course, had a much more skeptical take on America bearing the burdens of leadership. And again, it's because we've gotten so far, we're the products of our own success, that we've forgotten the reasons why we undertook these things in the first place. Let me ask you to comment on a quote that mm. you wrote in the book. You write, one does not have to look too far into the distance to see that the horizon is once again darkening and the potential for tragedy has returned. What similarities or patterns are we now seeing that harken back to 1938? Uh, well, there are a lot, I think, and that's the distressing point of this book, or at least in our view of it. Uh, you are seeing the balances of power eroding in all three areas on the Eurasian continent. You are seeing the crest of democratic advances already crested, and now it's receding as authoritarians move their way. You are seeing the multiplication of types of threats move on. You are seeing the two authoritarian states, really dictators that we have, both Russia and China being more willing to intimidate their neighbors, test American credibility, and nibble away at the international order. And simultaneously, and this is, I think, parallel and an unfortunate one to the 30s, you are seeing those who have most to gain by the perpetuation of the current international order, that's not only the United States, but many of our friends in Europe and Asia as well, less united, more divided, more confused, and more hesitant than they would have been. Those are the scary parallels, I think, between the 30s that we see. And why do you think they are more hesitant? I think it's a combination of reasons. First and foremost amongst them is that there has been absent American leadership. And when you don't have American leadership, it makes it much harder for states to rally around the defense of their cause because they would likely feel more exposed to that. That's not to say that they can't do this and shouldn't do this on their own. It's not to say that America doesn't pay a disproportionate burden. It does. But when you have America less willing or seemingly less willing to run the risks in front of or alongside of our allies, you're less likely to see them do it as well. And another point you made in the book is that because we have these memories of past tragedies, that makes us less willing, more reluctant 
to enter into what could perhaps be precarious situations. Well, that's exactly right. You know, in one sense, in the post-Cold War era, as we've moved away from this, we've seen an ability to not want to test escalation matters. You know, we forget even what things were like during the Cold War era, right? This is not a wonderful, peaceful time, but when there are tests of the international order, counter pushes, test back is actually what ended up stabilizing the world. Although, and we have to look at, and we do address instances like Vietnam, those are part and parcel in some ways of this project of being much more engaged. Generalizations are always dangerous, but you are now living in Sydney. How does your institute view the Trump administration's foreign policy? Our institute is a good think tank on a university campus, mostly funded by the Australian government. So like good think tanks, it takes no institutional position. There are multiple scholars there who can fall down left, right, and center. So what's the discussion around the water cooler? Look, on the one hand, you'll hear this a lot of the time, that where was America? We wanted a more assertive brand of America before, particularly with Chinese encroachments in the region. But we're not sure that this is exactly what we wanted. So there is some, both at the Institute, but really uh, down in Canberra, which is where the you know national capital is, where the defense, where intelligence officials sit, there's some feelings that the concentrated American pushback in the region, while episodic, is welcome. There's a lot of concern about Trump. The easiest way to say this is I get asked only uh, one of two questions whenever I'm down there, uh, which is basically like, uh, hey, mate, we just want to know, is this a crazy one-off or is this structural? I think this is a crazy one-off because of those very unique conditions of the 2016 election. Not only the very large Republican field and the Russian intervention into it, no less Hillary Clinton as a candidate, I think those are really unique conditions. I don't think uh, there are some structural stresses here. Uh, Americans are less enamored with playing the leadership role than they had in the past. They wouldn't have elected Donald Trump if that had been the overriding concern. But I don't think that that is the default position. And, you know, there are plenty of things to look to this. You know, Trump has been this wonderful stress test on America's leadership position. We don't know where we'll end up. I find the most interesting polling at this stage into his presidency, American popular support for American alliances, for free trade, and for democracy has actually gone up, not down. We're on the eve of another summit Mm. with North Korea. What are the best we can expect from this? Fool me one, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on us. I think we didn't get very much out of the first summit. I think we uh, had a lot of pageantry. I think that's what we're going to have likely this time. You can see that the White House is, and by the White House, I mean the president, actually in the process of lowering expectations for what this one is likely to achieve. Well, I want to congratulate you again on the publication of The Lessons of Tragedy, Statecraft, and World Order. Really, thanks for starting your world book tour right here in Dallas, Texas. It's a real pleasure. Thanks, Jim. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.